You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Christ is our vision, and they tell us that we are to have a vision for our work. We are to be able to picture in our minds what it is we commit ourselves to when we labor. What is your vision for your work? The problem is that so often the vision that you hold for your work is different from the one with whom you share the labor in common. She's got a different vision for your work. And so today we address ourselves, frankly, to the problem of our co-worker, our neighbor. If you've been tracking with us, you see we're talking about work and we've seen that work is a gift. It's a gift. It's an opportunity for us to reflect God's goodness But work is hard. It's an opportunity that we sometimes take to turn our work into a God. It's a cursed thing. And work is eternal, which is to say that Jesus Christ is the link between our work and what is of eternal significance. Today we come to work is common. Work is something we share in common with somebody else when we think about our neighbor. Whatever you do, surely there is someone with whom you do it. There is someone across the boardroom table. There's someone across the breakfast table. There's someone over that felt cubicle on the other side. There's somebody in your lab team. There's somebody who does grand rounds with you. There is another person, a neighbor. And in both of the texts we look at this morning, an Old Testament and a New Testament text, we see interest in our neighbor. Would you open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 9? I'm going to read the Old Testament uh, text for us as you listen. And then we'll read the New Testament text together in Matthew. So first, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. An interaction with a neighbor at work. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as humanity migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is the only only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. 
And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. You might put a pencil or a bulletin in there and flip over now to Matthew chapter 8. Our New Testament reading, verses uh, chapter 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 5, uh, page 787 of the Pew Bible. And our, our text is Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Let's stand together and read God's word aloud. After you're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, you spoke these words to your disciples of old. Speak them afresh by the power of your spirit to your disciples today. Amen. I'd like to look at the, uh, the neighbor in both of these texts under three headings. Cause, contribution, and capacity. And if you notice the assonance, you can tell the Spirit is already at work here. Cause, contribution, and capacity. If you have a vision for your work, you dedicate yourself to a cause. But what about the fellow next to you? What is his cause? What is his vision? In this text, in Genesis chapter 11, it's a text that begins really with a neighbor. Not just um, because of the location. The location is significant. It's a neighborly location to the Israelite who would have first heard this story read aloud. The plains of Shinar, the plains of Mesopotamia. This is where Babylon is. Uh, Modern-day Iraq between the Tigris and Euphrates River. A place lacking in the stony resources of Canaan, Palestine. So you would manufacture some kind of building product, as is done here, bricks. Not only is this a neighbor, a geopolitical neighbor, which, by the way, will cause Israelites no small discomfort when they hear this story read, because, you know, it's an uneasy relationship with the Babylonians to the northeast. Uh, these are the ones who would come in 586 and sack Jerusalem and cart away the Israelites. Now, it's just not just the location, the geography that suggests the presence of a neighbor. It is also the call to work, the call to labor that we see in verse 3. Our translation tells us, and they said to one another, but a more literal rendition of the Hebrew might read, and they said, a man to his neighbor. And they said, each one to his neighbor. Everybody's turning to a neighbor and saying, got an idea. Got a, got a vision, 
Let's go in. Let's, let's join cause together and make it a reality. And what's their vision? Well, starts off kind of innocuous enough. And I want to invite you to hear this as an Israelite might have heard this story imaginatively as though you were participating. I mean, just imagine that you're hearing this story and you're there, part of the workforce of the Tower of Babel, right? Your neighbor turns to you and says, got a way to make stone without stone. Let's take some clay and some bitumen for mortar and put these things together. And you say, okay, because uh, you know Genesis 128, the cultural mandate invites you to go out and bring order out of chaos and bring forth the richness of this creation and service of people and God's glory, and you like it, so let's do it. And then then as you're making these bricks, uh, someone beside you says, hey, you know, let's make this into not just a house, but let's build a city right here, Plains of Sheena, a city. And you're okay with that. Um, Because, again, the cultural mandate entails the nurture of people, these image bearers, through childbirth and care. And they need some protection, and cities will do that. We've already seen that in the book of Genesis. So... Yes, I I share this vision of building a city in which the people of this place can live. And so in you go, using your gifts, blood, sweat, and toil, tears into this project. And then as you're building, the neighbor turns to you and says, Hey, you know, let's, the center of this city, build a tower with its head in the heavens that we might make a name for ourselves. Now you're starting to get a little bit uncomfortable with this fellow. You work for the name of the Lord. He wants to work for the name of humanity. You know the story of um, a gentleman who's walking along and comes across a mason and says, what are you doing? The mason says, hey, I am making bricks. That's interesting. Walks along another few feet, comes across another mason. Says, "What are you doing?" He's doing exactly the same thing, but he says, "I am building a wall." Walks along a little further, another guy doing the same thing. "What are you doing?" "I am building a cathedral." Now it's a cool story as far as it goes. All three of them are building a cathedral. Only one of them has the vision, the big picture that allows him to attach meaning to what he is doing. So should we? But what if the vision of the fellow next to you is not that? She's building a cathedral, but she's building the Tower of Babel. We're both engaged in the same work. My vision is a city. Your vision is an an idolatrous tower. Babel would have most certainly have been a Mesopotamian ziggurat, the stair-step kind of pyramid with a stairway leading to its summit upon which would sit a pagan temple. Remember that the heavens hold back the waters above and the heavens are the dwelling place of God. And if we can construct something that will allow us to rise to the heavens, then we can penetrate that firmament and have for ourselves the immortal blessings, claim them as Our own, the word Babel in Akkadian, which is the language of Mesopotamia, means gate of God. Let's go knocking. No, let's go storming, your co-worker says. 
But what do you do? What do you do when the person next to you doesn't share your vision for the work that you and she are both doing? This question is a critical question. Every human organization is bent towards idolatry. Every organization. Like what Rodney Dangerfield says, I would never join a club that would have me as one of its members. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll destroy it. There is never, there is never an organization, whether it's the best of businesses, the best of non-government organizations, the best of families, the best of churches. There is no perfect church. Those that are just really close, like ours. But there are no perfect churches. So you always find yourself dedicating your energy to an organization in which you feel some measure of discomfort. Not quite sure that I'm in the right place. If you were to come into my office with a question like this, I'd tell you what I would do. I'd pull out a napkin and, and write a, a, a Venn diagram on the napkin. I, wanna, I want you to describe this in your imagination right now. Two circles. That overlap. One circle is your vision for your work. It's what you understand yourself to be called to be. You as a steward of the unique gifts that you and only you have been given. You've got a personal mission in life. That's your circle. The other circle is the circle of the mission of the organization in which you serve. It's where you work. Now, that organization, however clearly or ill-defined its mission might be, has a vision for what it's trying to accomplish, what it stands for, what its values are, how it does what it does. All of us work in organizations that are divergent from our personal call. The mission of the organization and the mission that you bring are not ever identical. In full. These two circles will not be coextensive with one another. There should be some overlap. So, the, really, what this text is initially inviting us to do is simply evaluate. Evaluate. Look at the person next to you. Look at the brick in their hand. And ask yourself if they put that brick into place, does it help me with my mission? Or if they put that brick in place, does it obscure? My vision. It's interesting how integrated in these uh, ancient Near Eastern cities the ziggurat would be with the city. Sometimes it's very hard to tell when the city leaves off and the pagan temple begins. And sometimes it is with our job as well. So first you've got to assess the overlap. You've got to evaluate. The second thing you've got to do is make a decision. Will you participate... Or will you withdraw? Sometimes you, there's not enough overlap to justify your continued investment in this organization. Many of you have made this decision. Some of you need to make this decision to look honestly and say, yeah, even in this economy, I've got to be honest and say, this organization is not worthy of my stewardship. It may be a great organization, but it's not one that will allow me to fulfill the ministry that God is calling me to fulfill. And with blessing, I've got to withdraw. I can't participate. And an Israelite might imagine themselves on the plains of Shinar saying, I've got to put the tools down because I am not in this temple project this tower is not my vision of what my work is all about. I'm moving on. On the other hand, 
you may recognize that there is disunion and that there will always be friction between you and the organization in which you serve, and yet you've got to commit yourself to that organization. Get over my perfectionism and say, you know what, I can do what I'm called to do even in this imperfect place. And I'm not going to find a perfect place, so I might as well use my gifts right now at this time and in this space. You know what, even though he's building a tower, I can build a city and we can work together. There's enough overlap. You've got to ask this question if you're a uh, a young adult working in CGI, you do video games, graphics, but all of a sudden your holding company purchases a San Fernando firm that does pornography. And they're sending their people up into your office. How much overlap is there? The picture just dramatically changed. You've got to ask this question. If you, like a woman in my small group, is wrestled with the way her company does its annual reviews and it just seems dehumanizing and I don't know how I could possibly be a manager in this culture, is that enough to keep you from not being able to do what God has called you to do? Or is it something you might be able to live with? Tough decision. Maybe you're a grandparent. And you're proud of your family, and your grandson has just decided to start a family with a woman he's not married with. And you're uncomfortable with that. They ask you for their, your blessing and your support, and now you've got to decide. You know, this is not the vision that I had for the family that I started, my wife and our kids, and, and yet, will I participate? Tough decisions. There's no right answer. Draw that diagram and pray and ask God to lead you. Get to know him well so that you can follow him wisely through these kinds of dilemmas. That's the cause. You'll never find a perfect fit. You've got to commit yourself to an imperfect organization. Let's talk about the contribution. How is it that it's possible to build a city within a tower that is antithetical to God. Well, under contribution, I want to encourage you to see that God gives gifts to all people. In Shinar, we have to ask the question, what's common about our task? We've got two visions and one task. If we look at uh, uh, Jesus' teaching here, not on the plains of Shinar, but on the hillside of Galilee, as he gives us his famous uh, um, Sermon on the Mount. The question Jesus seems to be entertaining for his disciples is who can help? Who can help? Can you help the person beside you who has a different vision, who's actively building a temple in rebellion against God? Can you help that person? It, wouldn't that be like giving money to an alcoholic that you know is just going to go and buy uh, uh, money, uh, uh, booze, you know, on a street corner? Could somebody who knows you're not building a temple and that you're building a city help you? If so, wouldn't that be like asking the KGB if they know any good contractors to build the American embassy? Just seems to be a kind of an incompatibility there. Who can help? Well, Jesus starts off, you have heard that it was said. He's appealing to common sense. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus 
had said, love your neighbor as yourself. God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's an ancient command. You will not find any command in the scriptures that tell you to hate your enemy. It is not there. But doesn't it seem like common sense? Well, if I'm to love my neighbor, that seems to kind of put a perimeter around my resources. Right? After all, I don't have unlimited resources. There are only so many people that I can love. And so the Lord has told me the neighbor is to be the object of my love, which seems to exclude somebody who's not my neighbor. And, of course, by the first century, the question is running around, who is my neighbor? Jesus gets asked this question. Who is my neighbor? Okay, who do I have to love and who don't I? Easy to translate that lack of love into hate. I mean, after all, if you have enemies, what to do with them if not to hate them? That seems to be kind of the definition of an enemy. It's someone that you hate and that agrees to hate you back. It's kind of a social convention, right? And you're supposed to hate your enemies. They're supposed to hate me or they wouldn't be enemies. And Jesus says, well, you've heard that. You're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, but I say to you, something very uncommon, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Will you pray for those who are committed to making your life and work hard? Will you pray for them? Will you love them? When their success criteria include the defeat of your vision, Jesus says, love them and pray for them. Now, you say that this is just not going to work. This is just totally impractical in the way that only Jesus always gets totally impractical. And Jesus says, ah, you've seen this before. My Father in heaven does this every single day. What does he mean by that? He says, well, he uses a natural illustration. He says, let me ask you a question. Do good people get better weather? Come on, Seattle, you better get this one right. <laughs> I can't preach a sermon in Los Angeles. No! Good people do not get better weather. What? Your Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He just doesn't discriminate. What's he saying? Remember, in, an, in a first century uh, uh, Palestinian economy, what you have are people who, who make their money through husbandry and farming. And so what Jesus is saying, look, God himself, my father, invests in the businesses of unrighteous people, of pagan idolaters, every day of the week. That's how indiscriminate God's love is. Kind of a bomb-proof argument, if you believe in God. But not everybody believes this about work. In 1527, coming out of the Reformation, one of the creeds that emerged was called the Schlettheim Confession. I will not spell that for you. It comes out of the Anabaptist tradition. And this is what they said about work. Since all who do not walk in the obedience of faith are a great abomination before God, it is not possible for anything to grow or issue from them except abominable things. God further admonishes us to withdraw from Babylon and the earthly Egypt that we may not be partakers of the pain and suffering 
which the Lord will bring upon them. This is the kind of thinking that leads to a strongly sectarian impulse. With this kind of thinking, we sit back with our arms crossed in class and say, this professor's not an atheist and don't expect to learn anything at all. With this kind of thinking, we look at a practice and say, it was invented by somebody who is Hindu and don't think it has anything to offer. We look at someone and say, I can't endorse their lifestyle. I'm sorry. But Jesus is saying that is not the way your father in heaven relates to all humanity. And John Calvin in his institutes picks this up. Calvin argues this. He says there is, quote, a universal apprehension of reason and understanding. Everybody has a capacity to reason and understand by nature implanted in humans, implanted by God in humans. Yet so universal is this good that every human ought to recognize for himself in it the peculiar grace of God. God's given everybody a capacity. Whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, Calvin continues, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of humans, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, We shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. See what Calvin is saying? Calvin was trained, as as you know, as a lawyer, and he had great respect for the Roman jurists, particularly Seneca. He's, He's learned a lot from them. He's not prepared to say all of their contributions to the cultural development of this Uh, society creation are null and void because they weren't pious like God wants us to be pious. Note, who is pious like God wants us to be pious? And so uh, Calvin lists all these fields that that God has gifted people for outside of the community of faith. Philosophy, the arts, medicine, natural sciences, and he goes on. Theologians call this common grace. By which we understand that God gives natural gifts, a restraint on evil, and the potential to do civic good to all people. All people. So who can help? Hand me a brick. You can help me. God helps you. You've got a contribution. You've got a gift for me. Let me help you to my foreman because God helps you. He has grace for you as well. We can work together for the common good. And Jesus says, you and I are called not to evaluate, but to love. To commit ourselves in love indiscriminately. Just as your Father in heaven has done. Well, who can do this? We have a cause that's sometimes divergent, and yet we can appreciate the contributions of those with whom we work. Our neighbors finally... Jesus addresses us, calls our attention to the capacity to do this kind of work, to love in this kingdom way, where it is not a common love. In this case, what Jesus calls us to is notably uncommon. 
It's the very love that Jesus demonstrates in his own life. Nobody has dedicated themselves to the common good like Jesus Christ. Throughout his earthly ministry, he's walking around and he's touching people who should have defiled him. The dead, the leper. He, he walks right up and he, and he touches. Jesus, who on the cross, while society is doing its work, calls out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And yet he persists in love for humanity. How can we find this same resource? What capacity do we have uh, to love as Jesus had loved? Well, the difference has to do with motivation. It has to do with our perceptions of heaven. Heaven is a theme that comes up in both of these texts. Back in the plains of Shinar, it is heaven that we lay siege to. It is heaven that withholds from us blessing It is heaven, therefore, that inspires our work. We've got to storm the gates of heaven to get what God is not apparently giving us. The work on the plains of Shinar, work according to Babel, is motivated by fear. Did you catch that? Let us build for ourselves a tower with its head in the heavens, or else, or else, we will be scattered across the face of this earth. We will lose our existence to dissipation. The writer uh, gives us a hint to this as he introduces this text telling us that humanity is moving eastward, probably a better tra- translation than from the east. This reminds us that human beings lost paradise through the eastern gate. Cain, uh, the murderous dis- uh, son of Adam and Eve, travels east of Eden to the land of Nod to depart from the Lord. And so humanity has lost its center and by centrifugal force is pushing away, drifting away from Eden and harmony with the Lord. And it is because of this that they feel anxiety and threat and fear and take up their work. You and I will never achieve our dreams as long as we work out of fear. When fear is our motivation, we have a negative construct for our work. And it will always be defensive. It will always be self-protective. It will never allow us to ask, what do I stand for? Only to allow us to commit ourselves to what we're against, my own dissipation. Jesus calls us to a very different capacity and, again, sends our eyes heavenward because he speaks of his Father in heaven. But he doesn't say, my Father in heaven. He says, your Father in heaven. Isn't this remarkable that Jesus, who is very God of very God, the Son of God, could speak to you as though you were a daughter or a son of his Father? It's only true because of what he has come to do. I know for myself, I am deserving of God's judgment. I break God's law every day, throughout the day. But Jesus has died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I know that I could never lead a righteous, obedient life, but Jesus has offered his own life of obedience as a perfect humanity to his Father to say, look what I have done on behalf of all humans. So that when he teaches us to pray, he can say, you pray, our Father. That is dramatically different. To know that your work comes out of a place of being secured in the love of a Father 
who has sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, is exactly what gives you and me the capacity to work that is defined not by our fears, but by our aspirations, our hopes, and our dreams. Bold, courageous, uncommon work for the common good. And so Jesus in the next chapter would say, don't be anxious about anything. Your Father in heaven knows what you need, clothes and money and an apartment and all of that. You let me manage the anxiety. And I call you to love. You focus on the kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Close with a story from Henry III. We got a little tired of how common his work was. King of Germany, year 1038, his wife passes away. Exhausted, stressed, overworked, as I'm sure kings get. <laughs> he stands at the graveside of his beloved wife, and perhaps her death gives him fresh perspective on the meaning of his life. And he says, I am going to live the rest of my life for Jesus Christ. I dedicate myself to something sacred now. So he mounts up on his horse and goes into the monastery where the abbot Richard meets him. And the king says to Richard what Richard had known Henry never expected to hear. And that is, I wish to submit myself to the orders of this brotherhood. Richard was troubled by this. Could I have a king in a monastery? Could I deprive Germany of her ruler? And uh, he had a sleepless night. But in the morning, he had Henry III come and kneel before him. He ordained him and asked him, Are you ready to receive the holy orders, to be obedient to me as your abbot? <laughs> Henry replied with all of my heart, I have long desired to devote myself to the service of Jesus Christ. So the abbot said, I command you as my first order that you are to return to your throne and serve as a member of this brotherhood as the king of Germany. Dedicate yourself to Jesus Christ. Serve the people out of his love. And friends, that's exactly what you and I are this morning. We are called by the king of kings. We are commissioned. We are, or, are ordained and set apart. For the ministry of the common good, we are indeed building a cathedral as Jesus works in us and through us. Let's pray. Lord, there is no objective difference between the way heaven looked in the plains of Shinar and the way heaven looked beside the Sea of Galilee. There is above the sky as a heavenly father in both cases, but we have to decide what we see when we look heavenward. We have to decide whether we will take up our work out of fear and anxiety or whether we will take it up in faith, knowing that you have given yourself for us in love and that there is nothing for us to fear, and that the only reason you've left us behind is for us to be vessels of your love for all people, those whom you have loved so richly in Christ. So we pray for those for whom this awareness of our uh, the gift of your love is a new awareness. 
grant faith and assurance that for believing this, we today have become believers and inherited eternal life. For those of us who have just persisted and all we've known that you have loved us in Jesus Christ, we keep forgetting. And particularly when we're at work, we pray that you will hold before us the joy of Jesus Christ when he says, you, you can be different. You don't have to be like the tax collectors or the Gentiles who have no father in heaven. May we hear that reminder in every moment of stress, every moment of anxiety and ethical conflict. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.